So we're in our final two weeks. We're going through Holy Communion, our liturgy. So we're getting really close uh, to some of the, the juicy parts of the text. And I want to try to get through enough today so that in our final week, we're going over the communion liturgy proper, the things that are actually happening there. I want to try to get through, Lord willing, the Sanctus and Benedictus today. Uh, and if those words don't sound familiar to you, maybe they will by the end of the class. All right. I want to remind you of, oh yeah, so some of you have asked, we've got up to date all the resources that I've given you in class, annotated leaflets like these things, any papers I've referenced or books I've referenced, I have links there on this zachhicks.com slash prayerbook class. Looks like zachicks.com, as I said last week, <laughs> zachicks.com. Evidently, a lot of you weren't here last week because that joke works awesome. All right. Um, so zachicks.com slash prayerbook class. Uh, yeah. My wife's not happy about that, but uh, can't do much about my name and the way my mom spelled my first name, Z-A-C, right? Thanks, mom. All right. Uh, our goals for the class are to help us better connect head and heart. It isn't just some sort of intellectual exercise to sort of understand more deeply what the liturgy is so we can feel smarter about the liturgy. The goal is to actually help us to connect what we're thinking up here with our experience of worship, that it might be more rich and that... Ultimately, as I said in our uh, adventurer, I think a week or two ago, that the liturgy is more like clear glass than stained glass. We don't want to walk out of a worship service and say, oh, what a beautiful liturgy. Oh, what a beautiful choral anthem. What a great, we want to say, what a great savior. You know, you want to be able to look through it to see Jesus more clearly. That's the goal. So the two goals are to better connect head and heart and to tune our ears to hear the gospel in worship. So that's some of the things I'm going to be pointing out about the liturgies, how we can hear this gospel better. Um, this is the heart of the prayer book. We say it every week, but I want this just to be drilled into us. It's to unleash the word of God, to convert the heart through the power of the gospel. The liturgy isn't just isn't supposed to be some art piece that hangs there for us to admire. It's supposed to be a vehicle to unleash God's word, which is in the readings, in the preaching, and in the liturgy itself, because remember, God's word and scripture is all over the liturgy. You know, something like two-thirds of it are direct quotations of or allusions to scripture, right? So it's unleashing this word to convert the heart through the power of the gospel. The word of God is living and active. So we've been journeying through Holy Communion, and we've said there's a very ancient structure to these multitudinous elements here. Uh, and the ancient structure is a two-part structure, kind of like morning prayer. But we might call the first part the liturgy of the word, where it's centered around the, the reading and preaching of the scriptures. And historically, the second part has been called the liturgy of the upper room. But as we said last week, we believe that actually both the preaching and reading of the scriptures and the sacrament are both ministries of the word of God. So it might be better. At Advent, we might want to call these kind of in the background of the structure. We might want to say that the first part is the 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 ministry of the word through reading and preaching. And the second part is the ministry of the word through the table or through the Lord's Supper. It's often, this two-part structure is often called a word and table service because it's a very ancient structure. It's a very historic structure of Christian worship. All right. Oh, so that's right. That's what I said just there, um, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So we're at the place of talking about this moment where after the preaching of the word, it's interesting that right after that happens, uh, we have a cycle, sorry, not the preaching, but this, the scriptures being read. 
at the end of it, just kind of like morning prayer, the way it works, we recite a creed together. Is it just a nice sort of bookend on scripture readings or does it have theological and experiential import? The latter. Like we said last time, the reason we recite the creed after this moment where the scriptures of God have been declared to us and we've gone through this journey of reading a psalm and responding with a hymn, but hearing the scriptures is because with the reformers and with Paul, we believe that the word of God births faith, that faith comes from hearing the word of God. And so it's enacted structurally in our liturgy. I believe in God is a statement of faith, right? In, in English, we have two different words for faith and belief. In both Greek and Hebrew and Latin, those words are one word. It's one word group for those things, for the most part. And uh, so the idea is when we recite the creed, we're saying, I faith this. As a result of God speaking his word to me, I faith, I believe this. And so this should be a really powerful, exciting moment in our liturgy. I mean, this shouldn't be mumbled. The creed must not be mumbled. It is a statement of the Holy Spirit rising up inside of you, crying out about the excellencies of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is what Christians have confessed for generations upon generations. The final thing I want to say about the creed is you'll notice if we're doing morning prayer, we recite the Apostles' Creed. And if we're uh, doing Holy Communion, we're reciting the Nicene Creed. That's just a way that the prayer book uh, compilers wanted to strike a balance so that we were saying both of these things. If you're being real hardcore, you're probably going to talk about the Athanasian Creed, are you not? Oh, okay, well, <laughs> totally. You're going to be a different hardcore. Okay. Uh, there's another creed that can sometimes be used. It's very long, but it's awesome as well. And I encourage you to check it out uh, online or in your prayer books. Yes. There's a point in there where it, it almost, the, the way it's said, like at 9 o'clock this morning, they, they, we put a comma in there that isn't there. After, and the third day he rose again, comma, which isn't there, according to the scripture. And if you read it that way, right. that, that comma says, well, according to the scripture, right. happened, but I don't necessarily believe that. Yeah. You see, but you say it without the comma, which is the way it is, he arose again according to the scripture. Right. There's a little bit more of a gravitas there if you don't put the comma in. Yeah, I get that. And that makes... That makes a lot of sense. It, it is fascinating. When you think that's a great example of how the spoken liturgy and the way we actually read it interprets it, right? Um, and that happens in a lot of places. I was even noticing it this morning in a few of our places. Sometimes we put pauses where there probably shouldn't be, you know, because it sort of obscures the, the flow and the meaning. And pay attention to that a little bit and start to listen a little bit more. I want to move on. All right, uh, and so we have at, at the moment after the creed an opportunity after we've declared our faith because, again, the word births faith and gives us access. So that word that birthed faith gave us access to come and talk to God about those very intimate things that we have been wanting and needing to talk with him about, which is what the prayers of the people are. We pray for marriages, births, and deaths. And uh, I like this quote from one of the prayer book commentators who said, the worshiper who is bid to prayer for this, the whole state of Christ's church, because that's what's said at the beginning, let's pray for the whole state of Christ's church in the Word. The worshiper who is bid to pray that can never think of his or her Christian life as bounded by some small or partial group. 
it's kind of a cool sentiment that even at the beginning of prayer, when we say, let us pray for the whole state of Christ's church, we're remembering here, we're part of a big community that goes beyond. I mean, you heard us praying today for all kinds of things outside Advent issues, right? We prayed for the Advent stuff, but we remember our uh, brother who is a governor in Jakarta who is going to stand trial this week for his faith. We remember praying for him because he's our brother, you know, and we, we need to keep those things in mind. And so again, after faith comes access. Always, that's, there's always this, this kind of rhythm and motif to the way the liturgy works is the word of God births faith and faith grants us access through Christ, right? And so after this, we have this awesome, awesome confession. I want to spend a few moments just unpacking particular words. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, just in case you thought you could still hide. I mean, remember remember in our liturgy early, if if sort of the Ten Commandments or the, the law weren't good enough to tell you, hey, you're a big time sinner and you need Jesus, Lord have mercy on us, you know, uh, it's coming back around again. Maker of all things, judge of all men, the all-seeing eye, Right? We acknowledge and bewail. This is really where certain Cranmer's gift for language comes out. Because you'll notice in our liturgy a lot of what's called uh, couplets or doublets and triplets where he, he tries to find multiple words to sort of get at it. Because he really believed that language has a way of tenderizing the hard heart into really grasping what we're trying to say here. So he says, we not only acknowledge our sin and wickedness, but we bewail it. Do you hear a difference there? It's not only that we say, oh, I'm a sinner, which honestly, more weeks, that's how I feel, is I'm kind of going through the motions. But the goal is to get you deeper into contrition, into bewailing it, to moaning about the fact that you're wrecking your life, that you're wrecking people around you. Uh, I think a lot about, it's always on the tip of my mind, is being a father and how much I feel like I'm doing irreparable damage to my kids every every day, and it's it's a it's a it's a I mean I'm giggling at it, but it's a real thing. It's a real thing that I bewail every day. Is I'm thinking my kids are going to be in therapy at 35 because of what I did just then, and all these studies are coming about these developmental things in their brains, and I'm messing up their brains by letting them look at a screen for two minutes, you know, and it's just like all that stuff. Just I bewail it, and I bet for you there's always the tip of your sin spear that is needing to be tapped into at a moment like this. Because sometimes we can fool ourselves into thinking we're good, thinking we've had a pretty good week. And we need to get to the place where we're not only acknowledge, yeah, I'm a sinner. Gosh, I can't remember any God, but uh, we need to get to a place where we're bewailing that stuff, okay? Um, and then here, our manifold sins and wickedness. Manifold's a great word. Manyfold, like it, it unfolds and goes in many different directions. And not only sins, but wickednesses, because it's a little darker. It's not just this theological category of sin, but it's it's wickedness. It's something that uh, that we do. And and here, this is a really important reformational distinction. It's a distinction made clearer in the Reformation. Both our sins and our wickedness need confessing. In I said this last week, but there was a debate among Rome and the reformers about the nature of sin and whether we had to confess what was called in that day concupiscence or the sort of inside desire heart-based. And Rome generally said with a broad brush that the things we need to confess were the manifestations of that stuff, sins. But the Reformation was clear. It's not only the sins that you need to confess. 
we wake up sinners, which is why morning prayer starts with confession. And we have, and this is confessible. This is damnable, right? This, uh, this wickedness that's in my heart. So both are, are important there. This is another important line I want to highlight because I think some of us don't get it. Understandably, because in, uh, English has changed. Uh, which we, these sins and wickedness, which we, from time to time, most grievously have committed against, right? You even heard it in the way I said it, right? From time to time, I've done these things. Okay, so in the 16th century, from time to time meant time after time. It doesn't mean that I've done in, in sundry places here and there. I've sort of sowed a little seed of sin around here, right? I think that, you know, and, and old Adam, if you want to talk about theological, old Adam loves to pray this, you know, from time to time I've said, I'm so sorry, God, you know, I'm kind of good here too, but uh, from time to time, you know, I need to confess a few things. No, I mean, the idea of the language is time after time, I've most, I haven't just committed them, I've grievously, grievously committed them. Uh, and this phrase, which is just a wonderful way of saying, you can't hide, again, a thought, word, Indeed, right? Covering all the bases of sin. We're always tempted to lower the standards of God's law and to minimize sin. All sin, even that which is committed against others, is against thy divine majesty. See, that's a wonderful part of this confession that reminds us of Psalm 51 when David commits adultery and comes clean before the Lord. He says this, which is strange to say because he has sinned against others. Against you, you only, O Lord, have I sinned. And that's what needs to stick around us, that our sin hurts others, but it ultimately comes back to be an affront against the infinite holiness and goodness and grace of God, right? It's, it's an affront to the goodness of God. For the Christian, for the Christian, the remembrance of sin is grievous. It should cause us grief. You know, we shouldn't get to that place where our heart is so hardened that we can just easily get there. And what this prayer is meant to do week in and week out is to, is to get our heart, this the hard edges of our heart from, from, from getting hard again. And it's, it's shaving those things off and it's softening and tenderizing that reality. When we hear after that point, the Declaration of Forgiveness. I think it's one of the more important moments in the service. Almighty God. This is from, this is a Cranmer's translation back from 1549 and 1552. It's a very ancient, old absolution. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of His great mercy hath promised. I preached today about God's promises. That's a really important word. It was an important word for the Reformation, that God promised forgiveness of sins to all who with hearty repentance, hearty repentance doesn't mean like a hearty meal, like real thick and juicy and fills me up. It means from the heart. Who with hearty repentance, repentance from the heart and true faith, turn unto him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the things that's important to Luther's theology is the idea of the I, you, direct address as a means of sinners hearing good news. It's not just good enough to hear the declaration from the pulpit. Jesus Christ died for sins. We all need to hear this as an individual moment where God says, I forgive you. And this is one of those moments where you need to listen not to the broken voice of a human being proclaiming, 
liturgical words to you. You need to hear in that moment, after bewailing and bemoaning your sin, God saying to you, I, God, who have the authority and the right to do this, forgive you. I forgive you. It's a resurrecting, powerful moment in the liturgy. And right after that comes, this is awesome. My favorite, the comfortable words. Okay, I've written a whole page on this puppy. I want to talk about it. Cranmer came up with this on his own. There's no, uh, there's no, nothing predating this in the liturgy. And Cranmer almost added this to the absolution because he wanted additional words being said straight from scripture that had the ability to, again, woo you. Remember, we talked about this with morning prayer that his big objective with the liturgy was that we'd hear words that wooed our hearts, that were soft, comforting words that brought us to God. And so we hear these four words, the come unto me and I will refresh you. Do you hear that I, you language there? Hear that as God saying to you, come, sinner, come to me. And guess what? I will refresh you. And so this is telling you, this is going to happen. This has happened in the preaching of the word. It's going to happen at the table too. You're going to hear again that I love you and you're going to see it and taste it embodied and physical at the table. You're going to hear again that I love you I've pledged myself to you. I betroth myself to you. You're going to remember your baptism. You're going to remember with these tokens my love for you. And then it goes on into a progression. So I want to say about this, there's a great little booklet in our bookstore by Ashley Knoll, the guy I've learned all my liturgy stuff from, who I would consider the world's top Cranmer scholar in the world, who's been here many times and he's come in sometime in summer and every one of you should be there because he's awesome. Um, he has a great book called Divine Allurement. Short booklet in our bookstore, costs five bucks on Amazon, got to get it, where he walks through the comfortable words, these four, and kind of exegetes them for us. And I want to summarize a little bit of what Ashley has said. These words of comfort, this is what comfortable meant to the original here. It's not like, oh, these are warm and comfy words, like, oh, couch, you know. These are words of comfort to people who are distressed, who need a word of comfort. They deserve unique attention. They're utterly unique to Cranmer and his liturgy. And the question must be asked, why did Cranmer add this moment to worship? Clues are given by the fact, listen to this, this is some of the history. Two of these verses appear as key text in the evangelical conversion of two individuals connected to Cranmer. Catherine Parr, the sixth wife of Henry VIII, sixth wife, wow, right? Uh, But she and Cranmer knew each other. She cites Matthew 11.28 as the verse that made the gospel come alive to her heart. It was her moment of conversion, was hearing that passage of scripture read to her or reading it. Likewise, reformer Thomas Bilney, one of the early heroes, one of the early heroes, credits 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Right? He heard that and said that that's what opened his eyes to the good news of Jesus. Both Parr and Bilney had have written moving. If you read their testimonies, which are available online for free, if you read their testimonies, they've written moving emotional accounts of their encounter with these words at their conversion. And Cranmer knew these stories, knew the power of these little snippets of scripture and wanted to give them to the people of God weekly. Why? Because the goal of the liturgy is to unleash the word of God to convert the heart, right? It's to find those dark recesses and those holdouts of you and me that are still saying, I, I'm going to hang on to my righteousness here instead of clinging to the cross of Christ. 
And he wants to get your heart in that uh, in that vein. Ashley Knoll, the world's foremost Cranmer scholar, unpacks the powerful significance, not only the content, but the order, the order of the comfortable words. They acknowledge a progression of thought and, a thought and experience with God. The first comfortable word begins with human longing, right where we are, the point of our experience, wearied, burdened, looking for rest. The second answers with divine longing. God so loved the world in response to our cry. God's heart is to love, come, and save. The third circles back to our experience, revealing salvation from a human point of view. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And at the root of our burden, weariness is our sin. So we're burdened, but how are we burdened? We're burdened because we're sinners, right? With which Jesus came to reckon. He came to reckon with that issue. The fourth word reveals God's response. Salvation from the divine point of view. Advocacy. Mediation. Sacrifice. Okay. It's an it's unfortunate that the revisers of the 79 prayer book seem oblivious to Cranmer's intent here. Having added this rubric before the comfortable words, a minister may then say one or more of the following sentences. It's important to hear them. Hopefully more often than not, you're hearing them completely and in succession. And I would encourage you to receive the comfortable words as nothing less than God's present word to you. They should be felt as an extension of his declaration of forgiveness, right? The tender, wooing words of a father, having declared assuring words of pardon to his people. And then we hit this moment where, like we talked about in morning prayer, when we greet one another in the peace of our Lord, it's an embodiment of the reconciliation that happens horizontally once the reconciliation has happened vertically, right? We can overcome all kinds of lack of reconciliation when this has been dealt with. It frees us up. And so when we greet one another, it's not simply peace be with you. It's we're, we're embodying the nature of what the gospel does when it obliterates a people, you know, when it, when it makes a people anew and resurrects a people, right? We welcome and we bless the children. Thank God. Here's what I'd say if you're parents and you have kids. This is, this is from an example of Jane Menendez. I've seen her do this. I don't want every parent to do this. If your kids are standing up and receiving a blessing from Andrew up front or somebody, put your hand on them. Have them sort of have a physical feeling of being blessed in that moment. I mean, it's a really key and powerful. I'm looking at the children from where I was sitting today, just praying to God, God, bless them just to know how much the church loves them, Jesus loves them, and we love them. And may we in our robes not look like scary, crazy people. But may we be people who feel like the people who offer them words of comfort and love and grace and mercy. And so we sing a hymn uh, to prepare our hearts. Again, there's this dialogue between devotional uh, prayer through singing and then receiving God's word. We're sort of primed to receive God's word. Today, we sang a hymn that I chose, Jerusalem, my happy home, because I wanted us to start thinking about the end. What's going on the other side of that? You know, so that we start conjuring up the longing of Advent to long for home. The sermon. Please go back to morning prayer and hear my talk on that because the sermon's a really important part of the liturgy. But I want to move on to talk about the offertory. This is actually a really critical moment liturgically. 
I'm just going to read what I have in the left-hand column here. The position of the offertory is extremely significant for a Reformation understanding of how offering functions in the communion liturgy. I'm going to pause there, but I just want to say the offering falling after the sermon is very much like the creed falling after the scripture readings. There's a purpose there. We don't just sort of come willy-nilly and are able to give God something. The Word of God does what? It always births faith. Right. It births faith. And out of faith comes fruit. It's always that equation in the Scriptures. The way the Reformers understood Paul was that the Word of God births faith and faith produces fruit. It's always in that order. Right? And so we have these cycles in the liturgy, which is why we preach a sermon. And then right after a sermon, we have an offertory because it's a way not only to give our money, (laughs) but to say, Jesus, take all of me. Having heard your word, I give myself to you. So its position in the communion liturgy strikes at the heart of the gospel. Unfortunately, the 1979 prayer book sees this offering as the beginning of the liturgy of the upper room. All right. Remember the division. There's the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the upper room. It places it in the prayer book in the same spot, but the way it uses its headings and rubrics indicate that it's the start of the communion liturgy. The reformers would have us see it as the ending of the liturgy of the word. There's a key difference. Even though it's in the same exact spot, understanding where it falls is critical. Though the positioning is exactly the same in the same place in the service, at the hinge of the first and second half of the liturgy, the difference isn't merely about headings or semantics. If we see the offertory as the beginning of the liturgy of the upper room, we are effectively giving in order to get. Does that make sense? Which is overt works-based righteousness, right? It's like we're paying God so that we can receive what he's about to give us at the table. If we see the offertory as the ending of the liturgy of the word, we understand offering to be a response to the grace already given in the word. It is important to see the offering in response to the read and preached scriptures rather than a paying in in order to receive the grace of the table. You see how significant that is? It's not just theological quibbling. Like You can experience it one of two ways. And one of two ways will be the death of you or the life of you. You know, it's it's really significant, really significant. And so... Um, I want to let that dangle and talk about the ritual and the symbology for a little bit. We have this procession that takes place. The plates are passed and they come from among the people and they go all the way down the aisle, all the way up the chancel, all the way to the very table from where we're going to receive grace, right? And the minister at kind of the moment where, and I was noticing what a great job Charles, our organist, was doing in having the the sense of rising and ascension that occurs when God by his spirit brings us to himself. Because the idea is that with all these plates gathered and put into one and then lifted up, it's saying that our congregation is unifying ourselves and bringing our whole selves to God to be offered up as a living sacrifice. God, take me and use me. And when you see the minister raise those things, I want you to say in your heart, Jesus, take all of me. Take every part of me. Not just the money, whatever. It should be a symbol of all of you. You know, these plates, it should be a symbol of all of you being gathered up from among the people and brought. Yes. Any idea how we got this tradition of going halfway across the aisle and back? It's the most confusing thing. What do you mean, the, the ushers? The, well, the, the, the place we pass halfway across. And, I mean, it's the silliest <laughs> thing. And, and a newcomer is always going to yank it across from us. Oh, yeah, I know. 
No idea. There's no, you know, theological... See? 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 That's why it's not left. Right there, right there. Uh, it was it was a practical reason, I think, for the way that ushers found plastic in place. Do you know? Because the pews weren't full. So it's like, why do we cut off the ends of the roast before we put it in the oven, right? Because yeah. grandma did it that way. Why did grandma do it there? Because her oven was too small, you know? <laughs> that's that's the way tradition sometimes works. It gets grandfathered in, right? I have a question. Yeah. The lifting up. Yeah. All of this. Yeah. Gathered. Those plates are heavy, by the way, I will just say. <laughs> but to me, I mean, I hear what you're saying about that, that's me, but... I also think of it as being our church. And maybe oh, yeah. Our church, but being the church. Part of yeah. I love it. Great. Definitely. Awesome. That's so good. So we are being gathered up. We are offered up. And then we sing this song. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. Wonderful phrase. It comes from Second Chronicles 29.14. The episode when David is dedicating the temple. I mean, Israel's at its zenith. Israel is the richest, most powerful, most influential nation on the planet at that moment. And they're dedicating the temple. And David says, All things come of thee, O Lord, and only of thine own have we given thee. Right? The idea is, anything I'm giving to you right now, God, it's only what you first given to me anyway. It doesn't belong to me. It's a, it's a categorical statement of life as gift. A very reformational thing to believe. That my whole life, everything about me, is a gift from God. And only in these tokens of money, uh, are just, are ju- I'm just saying, I'm remembering that all of my life is yours, God. You own me. And I give it back to you. Now, offering is an awesome moment. In response to the sermon, right? In response to the sermon. Yeah. Why, why do we sometimes sing, sing that and other times we sing the doxology? For variants, uh, so he's asking the question of why we sometimes sing that and sometimes sing the doxology. You'll notice, kind of like the creeds, we always sing the doxology with morning prayer. And we always sing this, probably for the sake of being able to say something like this, but also, I mean, the doxology is kind of a historic moment. Um, I wish there may be more significance to it than that, but I don't think there is. Um, yeah, all right, moving on. This is probably where we'll end, which is good. We've made some good progress. Oh, yeah. I want to say, though, before we go on, the, the final thing I want to know is as we, we stand and we sing all things come of thee, O Lord, it's a chance kind of in the physical physicality of the resurrection in response is to actually say in that moment, I give myself to you. I offer myself. Stand, sort of nothing left. I'm not leaving anything sitting on the pews for you, God. Uh, I'm off the bench. I'm all in, right? I love that moment. Take that moment to the bank, you know? So, uh, the great Thanksgiving. Great Thanksgiving. This is the, the beginning of the communion liturgy, the beginning of the table liturgy. It's probably one of the earliest and most ancient aspects of Christian liturgy that we know of. Uh, when liturgy was being formed in the first and second centuries, we have a document from the third century that gave us these words, you know? So it's a very ancient thing that we do. We say, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, which we talked about that response in morning prayer a little bit. So I encourage you to go back to that and check that out. And then we say, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is meet and right. It's fitting and right so to do.
So this great Thanksgiving, this liturgical dialogue which dates back to the earliest of liturgies on records from the third century. It's often called the Sursum Corda. Sursum Corda, Latin for lift up your hearts. The dialogue also contains the phrase often associated with communion in scripture, give thanks. In Greek, this word is Eucharistia, where we get our word Eucharist, which is why there's so much language of thanksgiving around the table, right? Cranmer would have understood, I'm just going to tell you what Cranmer would have understood uh, this as. He would have understood this as lifting of hearts, as theologically significant of what is and what is not taking place in communion. With reformer John Calvin, Cranmer saw communion as a spiritual feeding upon Christ as the Holy Spirit lifted our hearts to heaven where Christ is in bodily form at the right hand of the Father. Even here, Cranmer wants worshipers to know what he will say later in the liturgy, that feeding upon Christ and being nourished by Christ is done by faith. Okay? Just going to let that hang there for a moment. And I would say to you, when we pray these words, when we pray, we lift them up, like lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord. We can say in our hearts, God, send your spirit to take me where Christ is that I may experience him and know him in a deep and powerful way. Hey friends, we actually are charismatics. We believe that God is present among his people in powerful ways through the word, right? We've talked about that in relation to scripture reading and preaching. But his word is there in power as his spirit draws us. And these are supposed to be deeply powerful and experiential moments. Not mere ritual, but ritual plus. Because God's ordained that these certain means actually uh, create the kind of context where he will act and speak and preach words to us. Um, and then this is said right after that. It is very meet, right, and our bounden duty. I mean, it's our duty. We should do this, that we should at all times and in all places. Here's that word, that phrase again. Give thanks unto thee, O Lord, Holy Father, almighty, everlasting God. And it says this, a proper preface is added here. A proper preface is a section of prayer which is fitting, Old English for proper, you know, for the particular liturgical day or for a theological emphasis. And you can go in the prayer book and see the different options that can be prayed there. And a lot of it depends on what the, what's going on in the service um, and what season of the liturgical calendar it is. And we talked about the liturgical calendar a few weeks ago as well. But that's what that is, a proper preface. You know, if you don't know the language, it's just kind of odd. This prayer changes seasonally, which is why it's not regularly printed in our bulletin. But maybe one question, one question that you all have. We'll stop here for today. Yeah. The what? The piece? Yep. Are you asking, has it been a part? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't recall it in Cranmer's liturgies. Yeah. It wasn't, yeah, I don't think it was in the earlier prayer books. I think that, I think it's a wonderful addition to the liturgy because one of the things that Cranmer's uh, liturgy was accused of was being very vertical to the neglect of the horizontal. Um, and the piece is one of those times where the liturgy gets horizontal. And I believe that's biblical because uh, Ephesians 5 tells us we sing songs not only to God, but to one another. Sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. Like the Holy Spirit's preaching truth to us as we sing to one another. I actually think it's a beautiful 
aspect of the African-American worship tradition that you see a lot more than you would see in a place like this, where they're actually singing to one another. Um, when I was leading music a few years ago uh, in, in a con- congregation that was more diverse than this in South Florida, um, there were just several African-American families during our songs. They'd be like preaching the songs to one another, They'd be putting their hands on the shoulders and like affirming the text to one another because they knew this particular word you need to hear this, sister. You need to hear this, brother. And it, was, and it wasn't normally preachy. It was actually a word of comfort. Like, don't forget. I know you've been struggling this week. God is a big God. That kind of stuff, you know? So we, I appreciate those moments where our liturgy gets horizontal because we can, we can get awfully individual about the way that we're sort of approaching this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think there was that. And I, I think... That was, you know, in my own investigation and reading of the 79 revisers, one of the things that they were cognizant of was how do we engage the liturgy in a way that helps us understand we're doing this as a community, you know, a community of faith. There's a lot of emphasis on communal, community of faith, and uh, the priesthood of all believers, actually, and the laity taking up more roles in worship and those kinds of things. And so, yeah, that's right. That's, uh, that's where it was added. The reason I love when I survey is because of the final line, which fits where we sort of ended with talking about the offertory. So let's stand together and we'll sing this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, My richest gain I count but loss And pour contempt on all my pride Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast Save in the death of Christ my God All the vain things that charm me most I sacrifice them to His blood See from His head his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did there such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine That were a present far too small Love so amazing, so divine Demands my soul my life, my home. May God, by His grace, empower you to give your whole selves to Him this week for His service and His glory. Amen. Amen.